Yeah, it's Hebrews 13, verse 7 to 14. Dana. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Background. That would have been much more appropriate. Anyway, I wonder what you are particularly grateful for. If there's a particular gift you can remember in the past that you were very grateful for. I think at the moment we're very grateful for the roof over our heads, protecting us from the rain. Uh, wonderful gift. Uh, for me, the particular gift of the past I remember with um, particular delight as being one that I was very grateful for was a trampoline. I was about 10 years old. Uh, I remember the, the curtains being drawn back and revealing this trampoline outside that had arrived the day before under cover of night, and I was uh, ecstatic and you know, immediately ran out to start jumping about on it and didn't stop for about eight years after that point. Um, the book of Hebrews gives us another thing to be very grateful for, much more grateful than a trampoline, and that, of course, is the unshakable kingdom of Jesus. We've spoken already in this series about chapter 12, verse 28, being a bit of a hinge verse for us, um, as we're reminded of the unshakable kingdom that we've been given, and the acceptable worship that should be our response, our grateful response, as we remember the unshakable kingdom that we've been given as Christians. We've already referred to a number of things in chapter 13 uh, that form aspects of our acceptable worship, which is our response to that incredible gift of that unshakable kingdom. So love for fellow believers, hospitality for everybody, honouring marriage, and being content with what we have rather than shaping our lives around desiring ever more material goods. Tonight's passage gives us three further aspects of acceptable worship in response to the great gift of Jesus' unshakable kingdom. Namely, remembering your leaders, verse 7, avoiding other gospels, verse 9, and bearing with disgrace, in verse 13. So firstly, acceptable worship includes remembering our leaders. Now this is just Christian leaders it's talking about, it's not an obligation to remember secular leaders. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So we're thinking about Christian leaders who spoke the word of God. This may be a reference in the original to the apostles themselves, 
certainly who would have been ministering around the time this letter was written, and some of whom could well have passed by the time the letter was written. It's likely that the letter to the Hebrews was written before AD 70, given there are references to the temple sacrificial system, which was ongoing until about that year. So the leaders could well be referring to apostles, but it's probably referring more generally to others uh, leading the early church, not just the apostles. And it's probably referring to people who the recipients of the original letter knew personally, not just far-off distant characters um, of august name and reputation, but people who personally introduced these believers to Christ, who discipled them one-to-one, who fed them directly with the milk of the word, who catechized them and led the church when these believers were a bit younger. There may well be a broader application to slightly more distant Christian leaders, but the primary one seems to be those who they know, who they can directly remember. Uh, Nonetheless, Hebrews uh, 11, earlier in the book, had spoken of Abel's sacrifice as being an act that still speaks to us, even though Abel himself is long dead. The principle is certainly there, that those who have died can still speak to us through what they've done, through it it being remembered and written down. There's no need for a direct physical interaction in order for people to speak to us in that way. And that's so with the written word and with um, oral tradition as well. So why is this an aspect of acceptable worship? Why is remembering leaders an important part of our grateful response to the unshakable kingdom? Well, there's a general sense in which the gospel turns us away from lies to the truth, and therefore it makes sense to listen to those who speak the truth, who, as the words of that verse say, spoke the word of God to you, and by extension to remember them after they're gone. There's also a specific sense in which the gospel turns us to rightly ordered relationships. Do you remember the angel's prophecy to Zechariah back in Luke chapter 1? John the Baptist was to be one who would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, going before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just. The gospel reorientates us both to true wisdom and to those who speak true wisdom. It's therefore natural for acceptable worship to include remembering Christian leaders, honouring Christian leaders of the past with the intention that we learn from those leaders. It's a very frequent refrain in Paul's letters in the the Bible that we would imitate him. What were his words to Agrippa as he was at tried at Caesarea? I wish that you were as I am, except for these chains. As in, I wish you were like, like me as a Christian, as a believer, except for being in these chains. Christian faith thus can be learnt not only by instruction, and there's certainly plenty of instruction um, in the words of the epistles, but also by imitation, by looking at the life of the one who wrote them, uh, if you knew him personally, but also at his successors, at those who also, after him, have spoken the word of God. 
And that includes imitation of those who have led us in the past. Not necessarily imitating exactly what they've done, but imitating rather their priorities and their values. For me, the uh, instruction to remember your leaders makes me think primarily of actually my Sunday school teachers from when I was very young. They were the ones who first introduced me to the faith. But telling me to remember my leaders doesn't mean I go back to exactly the same Sunday school classroom and teach exactly the same lessons out of some strange kind of ossified form of respect for them. No, instead I follow their priorities and their values, their dedication to teaching the word, their faithfulness in doing so, their creativity in thinking of ways of doing that to quite a rowdy bunch of little children. And likewise, we might also think of an old youth leader who spoke the word of God to us in the past, or a former vicar of whether of this church or of another church we've been to in the past, or perhaps of a Christian author who has been particularly influential in shaping our Christian walk. This verse directs us to think of their faith, their good works, their priorities and character. Not because we think of them as saviours, not because they're sort of mini-Jesuses. Quite far from it. They have, all have plenty of flaws, certainly, even if we haven't seen them. But nonetheless, despite those flaws, there will have been many things that we can and should learn from and imitate. As for more distant leaders, who maybe we haven't interacted directly with personally, it's not AD 70 anymore. We've had another almost 2,000 years of Christian leaders since then to remember, to learn from, to imitate. I'm always keen to plug a Christian biography, and this is probably the best verse on which to plug Christian biographies. Um, so the rector himself uh, mentioned, in connection with this verse, uh, J.C. Ryle's classic, Christian leaders of the last century. Well, it was the last century when it was written. It's now Christian leaders of the 18th century. It's a few centuries ago. But anyway, excellent set of Christian biographies. And then slightly closer to home, I think I've already mentioned this in the pulpit at Shelford before, um, Derek Prime's biography of Charles Simeon. Uh, really fab Christian biographies there. But there's plenty of others. There's a whole libraries full of them. And they're definitely worthwhile reading, whether for half term uh, or for any other occasion. Remembering our leaders, acceptable worship also includes avoiding other Gospels. Let's have a look again at verse 9. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by eating ceremonial foods, which is of no benefit to those who do so. The Gospel of grace saves us. It saves people when they're introduced to it, it introduces them to Christ. But it also, for believers, strengthens. It's not simply a one-trick pony. We don't leave the gospel of grace behind when we become Christians. We need to keep hearing it and keep being strengthened by it. It strengthens us in the seat of all of our emotions and actions in the heart. But the heart, as well as having that good spiritual food, can also have bad spiritual food. Other Gospels can weaken the heart rather than strengthen it, diminishing in its view the holiness of God. 
diminishing the need for a saviour, diminishing the power of Christ to save, and diminishing his love and extending the grace of salvation to all. The author's own analogy in this letter is to sacrificial offerings. There's a slightly tricky illustration for us to get our teeth into in verses 10 and 11. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. Eating from the altar, which they had at that time in the temple, was not allowed. It might look holy to eat from an altar, but eating from that altar where the bodies of the sacrificial animals were brought was not authorised. They had no right, as the verse says, to eat from it, and they would derive no benefit from doing so. In fact, quite the opposite. They would invite divine displeasure from uh, eating that particular meat. Instead, it was to be taken outside the city or before the city was built, outside the camp and burned there. Well, likewise, just like that meat eaten from that altar rather than burned, other Gospels are described here as strange teachings and will not benefit us. They might look holy, they might look like a good thing to tuck into, but they're of no benefit, rather they weaken the heart. Well, how do we identify other strange teachings, other Gospels? Some are pretty obvious. Uh, They're labelled as a completely different religion, um, with no claim to have Christ as part of them. That's a fairly obvious, strange teaching to be aware of. Then there's a slightly trickier category of sub-Christian cults, which do have a bit of Christianity, but then they add in something else as well, whether that's Uh, the Watchtower magazine, or the Book of Mormon, or Mary Baker Eddy's Key to the Scriptures. Um, Whenever other such holy books are put on a a level with Scripture, we need to be aware and not be carried away. And even harder still is when strange teachings, again, as verse 9 puts them, creep into otherwise straightforwardly Christian churches. Those can be very hard to sniff out, And we're very much at risk of those carrying us away. I don't know if you're aware, but just across the road from here, uh, for about 100 years, there was a whale family mausoleum between 1775 and 1845, uh, where the site of the White House stands now. That was where the, the whale family who are commemorated on this wall all used to be buried before they were transferred into a vault about beneath where I'm standing, actually. I think they're, they're pretty much literally beneath me at the moment, which is slightly terrifying. Hopefully the floor won't give way. But uh, such mausoleums were at risk in the 19th century as medical science took off from body snatchers who would literally dig up uh, bodies soon after they'd been buried and carry them away. So it was much safer by about 1845 to put bodies underneath the church floor uh, and lock up the church building rather than have them in a separate mausoleum. Uh, That was risky uh, for people who were being buried back then, uh, but much more risky for us if we're going to be carried away, not by body snatchers uh, wanting to take bodies away for medical examination in the medical schools of Cambridge, uh, but instead by strange teachings. That's the risk for us. 
those strange teachings don't have designs just on the body, but on the soul. Now, thankfully, unlike the sort of cadavers that were being dug up, we have the spirits to resist that, and we have the readiness to be aware of them, and therefore uh, capacity to be instructed in verse 9, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. The best defense we can have against being carried away in that fashion is being strengthened in our hearts by grace, that is, with the word of God. As the word of God strengthens us in our hearts, as we feed on it, we grow in discernment of right and wrong, of what is a true teaching and a strange teaching. We grow in resistance to all the winds of doctrine that fly around us, and we grow in ability to weigh teachings from the pulpit and elsewhere for ourselves. And that's something we can help each other out in to a great extent, which is why I'm enthusiastic about home groups. Uh, If you're not part of a home group, I very much encourage you to get involved in one. It's also good to be aware of the strange teachings themselves, though, as another defence, as well as uh, imbibing the milk of the word. Another little book plug I've got here is a slightly older book called Cults and Isms, uh, which is um, a nice summary of all sorts of um, sub-Christian strange teachings and cults. Um, Wonderful when you encounter the Jehovah's Witnesses on the street corner or the Mormons knocking on the door, just to be aware of some of the things they actually think, and as well as having the armament of the, the word of God, also to be prepared for what they might say as part of our preparedness not to be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. So remembering our leaders, avoiding strange teachings, thirdly and finally, acceptable worship includes bearing disgrace. Verse 12. Jesus suffered outside the city gates to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us, then, go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Again, we have slightly tricky imagery to tackle here. The author seems to be using the idea of the sacrifice in the city in two separate ways. So we've spoken about how he used it to warn us not to eat of the meat unauthorised for public consumption on the altar in Jerusalem. But then he obviously takes the thought of the uh, taking of the forbidden meat outside the city to be burned as a segue into talking about Jesus also having been taken outside of the city gate. Uh, And so Jesus also suffered outside the city, just in the same way as those sacrificial bulls and rams and sheep were burnt outside the city. So Jesus, in his flesh, suffered outside the gate of Jerusalem. The crucifixion occurred at Golgotha, outside the city gate, which sometimes confuses visitors to Jerusalem today who see the old wall and they see the Holy Sepulchre Church, which is reputed to be the site of the crucifixion, inside the wall. But, of course, those walls are a 16th century wall, not the wall that was there in the 1st century, when that site was outside the city gate. So just as crucifixion was a great disgrace, so also banishment outside the city, for that to happen outside the gate, 
was a further underlining of the disgrace that Jesus suffered in that day. And yet, that is the place where, in the words of the verse, he made people holy. By his atoning sacrifice, in that place of disgrace, he brought us cleanliness spiritually. And we're called to follow him there, to follow him outside the gate, as it were. As we follow him, we deny ourselves and we take up our cross. Not a a literal, in most cases, taking up of a cross, not a literal leaving of a city, but rather a spiritual taking up and a spiritual departure from the place of comfort and security and safety. Just in the same way as the heroes of faith that we read about back in Hebrews chapter 11 inspire us with their journey away from their places of safety and security following the call of God. They were looking not for an enduring city on earth, but for one in heaven. In other words, in verse 14, as it says again there, they were looking for the city that is to come. None of us want to be on the outside of things. There's shame in being outside, whether one's a child at school sent outside the classroom for throwing things around, or a football player sent off off the pitch, away from the game, with a red card, or uh, if we're at work and we're asked to leave a meeting because our contribution is not valued anymore or is not appropriate. Going outside is hard when we're made to do so. It's much harder when we're voluntarily doing so, when it's our responsibility to go outside, as verse 13 says, to go out to him outside the camp. Why would we bother Why would we take upon ourselves the difficulty and disgrace of that? Again, it's because of the value of the great gift, not the trampoline, something uh, much more unshakable than the trampoline, the unshakable kingdom of Christ, the wonderful gift that we've been given. That's our motivation in joining him in that place of disgrace outside the city. And it makes sense as well, because... The city will not last. It's part of the kingdom that will be shaken. Whereas Jesus' kingdom is the one that is unshakable, even though it looks disgraceful. That's the, the gospel pattern for Christian life. To lose our life and security and comfort now, but to have it safe in the eternal day. Rather than keeping it now, keeping something that won't last now, and losing it forever. Well, going outside the camp, bearing disgrace with Jesus, takes all sorts of forms. And I'm certainly not going to be able to list and go through all of them now. Um, There's all sorts of situations where we can preach to ourselves the need to bear disgrace with Christ uh, in a particular situation, in a particular conversation or moment. Whether that's identifying publicly as a Christian, questioning other people's non-Christian worldviews, in a gentle and respectful way. Offering to pray with people in a situation where that's not normally done. Talking about our faith in almost any situation. Inviting people to church, living by Jesus' standards. All of these situations may well be ones where we need to preach to ourselves, bear disgrace with him. Go outside the camp to him. Don't stay in this place where there's a false security. We need to consider at all times 
who it is who's outside the city, not a common criminal on the cross, but the Lord of glory who reigns over his unshakable kingdom. Much better to be there with him, even if it doesn't look that way sometimes. Let's pray. We thank you, our Heavenly Father, for your unshakable kingdom, your heavenly city, the promise of life with you forever, a life for those of us who have turned to you and put our faith in you, which has already begun. Help us to rightly value your kingdom and so worship with all that we have in all these situations. For the sake of his name. Amen.